Well, welcome again to Carmelite Conversations. It's great to have you back, and it's great to be back, Francis, in the studio. We've had uh, sort of an off and on uh, month of July, I think, due to uh, travels, uh, mostly on my part, but it's great to be back in the studio with you. How are you? I'm a little bit um, frazzled because I got lost on my way here. I was thinking about what we're going to talk about tonight so much that um, I I just missed my turn. So... <laughs> Well, I had to confess, I ended up doing the same thing. I was uh, driving and talking with my wife on a on a cell phone and uh, made that same mistake, went right past my exit. Uh, but I'm very excited about the uh, program as well. We're going to be uh, discussing, conversing uh, in this particular program, the prophet Elijah, and then we're going to spend some time talking about the names of our Blessed Mother, uh, most especially the Star of the Sea. Uh, and also talk about uh, our, our uh, mother of Mount Carmel and, and, and the history of that name. And the feast day today is Our Lady, Mother of Divine Grace. That's her feast day, which our Carmelite order also honors. So we want to take some time to explore those names, but we want to begin with a prophet who I think, in fairness, Francis gets a, an unfortunate uh, um, back uh, burner or second shelf uh, exposure in our order, and that's the prophet Elijah. Uh, and I'd like us to begin, in fact, in prayer as we do each week, uh, with that prayer uh, devoted specifically to that name that we talked about, the Star of the Sea. Would you lead us in prayer this this evening? Yes, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail, bright star of ocean, God's own mother blessed, ever sinless virgin, gate of heavenly rest taking that sweet ave which from gabriel came peace confirm within us changing eva's name break the captive's fetters light on blindness pour all our ills expelling every bliss implore show thyself a mother may the word divine born for us thy infant hear our prayers through thine Virgin, all-excelling, mildest of the mild, freed from guilt, preserve us, pure and undefiled. Keep our life all spotless, make our way secure, till we find in Jesus joy forevermore, through the highest heaven, to the almighty three, Father, Son, and Spirit, one same glory be. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Francis. Um, I'm going to uh, go ahead and uh, let our listening audience know that uh, uh, some of what we'll be speaking about this evening, I always like to present the texts that we're using as part of our conversation. And uh, this evening, the text that we'll be using, at least in part, is simply titled Elijah, Prophet of Carmel. It's by Jane Ackerman, and it is in ICS, that's the Institute of Carmelite Studies, a publication, so this is fairly easy to get a hold of um, if you're familiar with the Institute of Carmelite Studies, and they online, of course, at icspublications.org. I found this to be a very good text to help um, explain not 
just, of course, who Elijah is, uh, but his significance to the Carmelite order. And you had a text, Francis, that you were able to find for uh, preparing for this evening. Yes, I just love it how we come up with different ways of coming to these, this conversation. And I uh, reached for a book called The Ten Books on the Way of Life and Great Deeds of the Carmelites. And it's by an ancient observant Carmelite, Philippe Ribot, R-I-B-O-T, and um, it is really um, inspiring to read, so I in- encourage all of you to uh, look into that. Well, I know, Francis, that uh, despite my earlier comment that I think Elijah has been somewhat uh, over, uh, passed over um, in the history of our order, at least in terms of uh, the modern-day focus of the order. We, of course, talk about St. John of the Cross, and we talk about St. Teresa, uh, St. Therese, uh, uh, Elizabeth of the Trinity, Edith Stein, so many great saints, Brother Lawrence. We've done programs on many of these, and we'll do those that we haven't done yet. Uh, but Elijah is difficult, I think, for uh, some even uh, Carmelites to understand in terms of the role that he plays in the order. The significance of Elijah is adequately understood for us in the modern world, let alone Carmelites, but for us in the modern world. And what it is that Elijah, his life, the model that he presents in prayer, uh, the significance of that to each and every Christian who aspires to this intimacy with our Lord and to union with God. Isn't isn't that a critical piece of the role that he plays for us? Oh, absolutely. His stance of prayer, being present before the Lord God and being a truth bearer of the presence of God and his love for God um, and his call to the to the people to return to God. These are all very important. And it's funny, uh, I'm thinking even this day, as we experience drought in so much of the United States, this drought, you know, we, we see it on a material level, but on a spiritual realm, there's drought in your prayer life. And so Elijah is a great one to turn to for drought and to ask for the rains to come falling down this well, rain of grace. What a great uh, analogy. And in fact, Francis, just before we came on the air, you were explaining uh, the significance of how Scripture is layered for us and and how it continues to reveal itself when we peel back we may think and i think unfortunately some some may believe well i don't get the the depth of uh, uh, uh spiritual intimacy out of the old testament that i may get out of the new testament i really focus on the gospel or paul's letters which are fantastic and i certainly wouldn't uh, diminish in any way the significance in the role that they play in our spiritual development but we sometimes miss the beauty and the significance of the old testament which of course for us is every bit as valid as the new testament it's all part of the economy of salvation right. but explain what you were telling me about this peeling back in the the uh, sort of repetitive uh, nature of scripture revealed to us well i was thinking of when pope benedict the 16th our current pope was telling us about you know the spiral movement of god and and i've been thinking about saint john of the cross and the spiral movement of the dark nights and how uh, we revisit some areas to to grow in those areas in different dimensions and of course that along with the interior castles and the mansions and and so you know basically what i was trying the point that i had and my mind was that uh, the scripture comes alive for us and it, it in different periods of, of life uh, 
more meaning come becomes more revealed to us. And um, I mean, I've been reading about um, this Isaiah nine ten prophecy. A lot of people mm-hmm. are talking about that mm-hmm. because of this bestseller book um, that Harbinger. is out, The, the Harbinger, Harbinger yeah. by Jonathan Kahn, C A H N. I don't know how I pronounce that, but anyway. So I kept thinking about his prophecy and this um, connection to the nine eleven uh, twin towers attack. And I kept thinking, oh, but we have a, a an even greater prophecy here with Elijah and this a battle that occurred on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal or Baal, B A A L. Baal, yeah. Okay. And I'm thinking, um, and, and I'll just mention this in brief. I don't know if we'll get to it as as we talk, but I am seeing a connection between this fire that consumes the Holocaust that Elijah offers on Mount Carmel um, as the sign, you know, that, you know, it, people take a stand, you know, either Baal or Baal is Elijah the, is the says, true God yeah, yeah. Or, or either, you know, my God is the true God, you know. I, interestingly, I want to point out because it is a, a point of conversation and I don't want us to um, uh, get ahead of that particular point in, in the conversation. But Elijah says in that moment uh, to the Israelites, choose now if God is God then choose him. If Baal is God, then choose him. And he does this before the sacrifice. That's important, right? He's asking for an act of faith now, Uh, but he's laying it on the line. And I think this is a question that is asked of each one of us every single day in our prayer life. And especially as we face trial and dryness and drought in our own life, ask ourselves, is God our God? If so, choose him. Stop this continual internal dialogue and debate and wondering and fear and anxiety. I can certainly relate to this, Francis. We've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. Either God is God and we are going to choose him and accept that and, and accept all that comes in our life, or we're going to choose something else, something less, something that is not God, and we're going to grasp at straws, or we're going to look for the phantasm, or we're going to look for comfort, consolation, whatever your Baal happens to be. Uh, but Elijah's very clear. There's no uh, sort of gray in Elijah's dialogue. He's very clear. Right, and that same kind of thing happened at that um, miracle of the sun, in Fatima, October the 13th, 1917. And, um, you know, the Blessed Mother had appeared to the three little children of Fatima, Francisco, Jacinta, and Lucia, and said, you know, um, you know, they, they, the children had asked for a sign that the people would believe them. And so she says, well, have the people gather. Just like uh, Elijah says, have the people gather. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she does bring this sign and the miracle of the sun comes. The people were drenched in rain. So we have that water analogy there. And the sun comes down and, you know, the people who experienced it. And it's in the newspapers. If you mm-hmm. go back to the newspapers in Fatima from 1917, you will see pictures and articles, testimonies. Um, and they well, say, the, the story of Elijah is carved on a stone. I don't know if you've seen that just outside of Israel. Oh, no, I did not know that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Okay, well, anyway. <laughs> anyway, so the sun comes and it dries them. And, you know, they all um, they all had a conversion experience right then and there. A lot of miraculous healings occurred right then and there. But anyway, so I, I'm thinking of this Isaiah 9:10 prophecy. And then I'm studying about Elijah. And I'm thinking about this miracle, the sun and this, you know, the fire. And, um, you know, it wasn't long ago that there was a big meteor come out of the sky. 
sky and it looked like a golden arrow piercing the earth and there was a picture of it you know on the news and i was just like oh my gosh the golden arrow is that flame that fire um flaming arrow you know so all this has been churning in my mind and you know we, we do have to be aware we have you know for for those who have ears to hear let them hear we need to be aware we need to read the signs of the times but again i think um Elijah would call us back uh, to this uh, experience, and he's the model for us of an experience of interior prayer, because we won't be able to read the signs. We won't know how to respond. Uh, We won't find ourselves conforming our will every day to the will of the Lord without that interior voice. And we're going to get to the still small voice, because I think that's an important part of the message that Eliza has to share with us. But let's do a little bit of backstory, a little bit of history. Elijah, of course, was a hermit. He sought God in the quiet places, the desert places. He practiced very austere asceticism, fasting, vigils, nighttime prayer. Um, These are all important aspects of his life. He also, um, of course, practiced virginity. He was uh, um, uh, very devout in in his uh, pursuit of God and believed for him that that virginity was a critical part of that. Um, There's an interesting uh, phrase in uh, Kings 19.10, and this is, of course, after Elijah, we'll go to the story on, on Mount Carmel in a moment, but after Elijah has um, engaged in the battle with the prophets of Baal and um, has sought refuge in um, Horeb uh, away from Jezebel, who's chasing him, uh, Ahab's wife, who's chasing him, um, Ahaz's wife, rather, he, he um, finds himself before the angel of the Lord who asks uh, Elijah, you know, What's the matter? I mean, in in our terms, what's the matter? And he says, I have been zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. And, you know, that's that's the motto on the Carmelite shield. Um, With zeal have I been zealous for the Lord, God of hosts. And, And that's the stance of a Carmelite. To, to stand in the presence of God with this great love for God and to bring it to all. And what does that mean? We've got, we're going to have to sort of unpack that phrase, Francis, because it's so critical to stand before the living God, right? Our Carmelite rule tells us that we are to be in our cell, right? And this is the Carmelite rule. And we, we do not need to uh, fall victim to the assumption that the Carmelite rule was somehow written for the monks on Mount Carmel in the 1200s or that it was written for the European uh, Carmelite monks. The Carmelite rule is the Carmelite rule, and it was written for us. It is our responsibility to understand and to interpret it for our individual lives because it was handed to us. Many argue, in fact, we might do a show on this sometime, but uh, many argue that the rule itself is a mystical document, mm-hmm. uh, that it is a guide to a mystical a roadmap, if you will, in the spiritual life. You're wetting our appetite now. We want to hear that one, too. (laughs) But suffice to say, it has survived through many uh, difficult uh, trials and challenges, the rule itself. Um, And one of the things that it directs us as Carmelites to do is stand uh, within our cell with the exception of the need to fulfill the responsibilities in life. But um, what do we mean by that cell? What do we mean by standing before the living God? Let's go and find out what our father, Elijah, was talking about. So let's let's tell the story of his battle. And then I want to come back to this biblical reference of uh, zeal and zealousness before the Lord. Okay, so you're wanting the story... um 
Uh, what ha- what happened on Mount Carmel? Yeah, let's, let's, let's okay. do that first. So let, just in a nutshell, okay, because I'm going to paraphrase rather than read it read it all. Um, you know, the people have been sinful. They've been going to these idols, and uh, so they're offending God. And so um, there is a drought. Elijah has asked, uh, been, has done. They, they've been worshiping, actually, to Baal, right? Right. Yeah. And, and so... Um, Lord, uh, Elijah prays, and there is a drought for three and a half years, and it is only going to be by the prayer of Elijah, instigated by the Lord, of course, because mm-hmm. he's only, a as a prophet, saying what the Lord has told him. He, And, of course, we know a true prophet doesn't say his own words. He only says what the Holy Spirit uh yeah, impels him to do or, or mm-hmm. encourage, mm-hmm. you know, uh, directs. Yeah. Directs him to yeah. Do and so he's responding. So, anyway, he's basically saying, okay, now, you know, uh, I've had it. You know, the Lord has had it. Let, let's all gather and let's find out who is the true God. And he summons all Israel to Mount Carmel and all these prophets of Baal to come up. And then, you know, they basically each make their altar and put the, the bull, the holocaust on it. And so Elijah says, well, you go first, you know. And, you know, they're praying and they're cutting their arms and the blood is flowing and, you know, uh, nothing's happening. And Elijah says, well, maybe your God's asleep, you know. <laughs> and um, Having some fun with him. You know, all these, humor. <laughs> all these hours are passing and the people are all watching because they're wanting to see the outcome. And so nothing is happening here. Um, and then, of course, Elijah, um, he's going to really uh, challenge them by on his altar um, with the Holocaust. He's going to pour water. And, of course, water it has been rare now. So where he, they come up with this water, I don't know. But uh, he's going to pour water on three times, which I know it must be very significant. Mm-hmm. And um, so he drenches it. And then he uh, basically says, you know, uh, Lord, uh, answer me, um, answer, answer me, Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to their senses. So he wants the people to be convinced that it's the Lord that has called them, not Elijah, and that it's the Lord's doing and, you know, that he wants, the Lord wants them to repent. And so, um, as Elijah prayed that, the Lord's fire comes down and consumes the Holocaust, consumes the wood of the Holocaust, uh, of the altar, and consumes the stones that created the altar and, and the dust and uh, lapped up all the water. Everything is gone. And, of course, the people were shocked and they um, fell prostrate and said, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. And, you know, uh, at that time, you know, they had been converted. And, and just a point of uh, reflection. I mean, we should all... Uh, in reading this particular uh, verse from Kings, we should ask ourselves, what is the Holocaust? What is it for us? I mean, in fairness, I think it's uh, somewhat different for each of us individually. But what should the Holocaust represent to us? What does it represent to us? I think there's some fair reflection material even in that uh, uh, particular reference to the Holocaust. But then he goes on to do something else, Francis. What? Well, um, and then uh, he says, seize the prophets of Baal. Let none of them escape. And then, you know, he, they were all their, uh, they were killed. And then Elijah uh, goes to pray. And he uh, says to Ahab, go up and eat and drink. Well, uh, okay, so let's you go back. you got to say who Ahab is, right? No, no, no. That's all right. Let's go back for a moment to the, to the zeal. Um, obviously, uh, Elijah is uh, very zealous in defense of the Lord's position here, right? He's right. asked for 
um, literally the killing, as you've said, of some, the numbers in there, I think, I don't know if you read it, but uh, some significant number of uh, Baal 450. Prophets, 450, right. And, and so we might be a little uh, taken aback by that. We might shudder at that. But um, I want to go back now to the reference of zeal. And there's another place in Scripture where this word zealous is used, where the uh, person to whom it is referring expresses a great deal of zeal, and that's um, in um, Christ's cleansing of the temple, as you recall the story. And so he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. This is from John 2.15. His disciples then remembered that it was written of him, zeal for your house will consume me. Okay, so how do you put those two together? The zealousness of Elijah manifested in his defense of the Lord's position and the call to the people for conversion is manifested in the very behavior of Jesus Christ in the temple. Now, in fairness, Christ isn't uh, killing them, and we have to put these stories in context. Uh, you know, so often the issue's been raised. We've talked about it, actually, in a previous conversation. What is Christ doing? You know, he fashions a whip. He's actually whipping these people. He's turning over their money. He's he's uh, spilling their possessions and so forth. Of Manifesting course, the anger of God yeah, right there. <laughs> exactly. A righteous anger, a zeal in, in uh, uh, consuming him uh, for the house of, of the Lord. And what we have to understand is this is the zeal with which... Jesus, or Elijah, who prefigures Christ, would want us to deal with those things in our temple that separate us from the Lord. This is the way that Elijah demonstrates how the Lord consumes the Holocaust. And again, we have to wrestle with what we mean by that Holocaust. What do you think? I think the Holocaust is our personal sin. Ah, And we have to understand that we can't overcome that. We have to rely on the Lord to do that. And so we put it before the Lord. This is the model that Elijah presents to us. We put it before the Lord, and he consumes everything, even to the stony hearts, right? The stones, of course, are a reference for our hearts. But Christ, in the word zeal is the connection, has exactly the same zeal for driving out those things that in our hearts are impediments to our relationship with the Lord. Uh, and the temple, of course, is representative of our very nature, our soul. Um, it's an interesting correlation. There are many other correlations between Elijah and Christ, but uh, I, I wanted to just capture that one um, issue. And there's a couple of other references, we'll get through them quickly before the break, that help build this story in Scripture. Uh, Elijah was not just an interesting historical figure. This is the point we're trying to emphasize, I think, Francis, in this particular program. He is a representative of what the Lord would send to us in the last days. And that last days reference is not just for the time of the gospel. It's not just for uh, Paul's letters. It is not just for the early church. It is the time when we, as a people, need to be aware that we may be entering the last days. And what does Scripture say? Behold, from Malachi 4.5, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And then from Matthew, we have... Um, Matthew eleven eight through eleven. But Talk, what did you talking about John the Baptist now, right? Right. Um, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft 
clothing. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And finally, from Matthew eleven fourteen, just before the break, and if you are willing to accept it, Jesus says this now, what Francis just read, and I'm quoting our Lord again, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. So this is a appealing back, uh, so the layers let, of scripture here. Let's get to that when we come back from the break. How is it that Jesus says John was Elijah? When we come back from the break again, you're listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home.
with Mark Danis and Francis Harry. Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations. I want to remind again our listeners that if you'd like to join the conversation, uh, we're speaking um, in this particular program about the prophet Elijah and the significance of Elijah to the Carmelite order. And I think, Francis, we could fairly argue that really the conversation is about the significance of Elijah uh, to the church and in a special way to our modern time. I think there's a, a significant role uh, for the spirit of Elijah, which we're going to get to here and as we close out these scripture verses, uh, the spirit of Elijah and the model of prayer that Elijah presents to us. You know, I think you and I began this program, and I don't mean this particular one, but this series of Carmelite Conversations with a singular theme. We wanted to focus on sharing our perspective and allowing others to offer their insights and perspective on how to deepen their prayer life and deepen through that prayer life their intimacy with the Lord. And we thought that it would have a spiritual direction, you know, sort of component to it as in um, helping people through difficult times and understanding the the roadmap that uh, a great saints have laid out, like Therese of Lisieux and Teresa and St. John. Um, and I think, as I said at the beginning, we we need to focus on Elijah because, as much because, Elijah is the very model for our prayer life in Carmel. And, and I think we don't want to miss that point as we continue through these these verses. And absolutely, we could probably be doing a whole another program on that. <laughs> I, I think we could, and we just might do that. But let's go back to the verses because they tie together the significance of Elijah that we're talking about. We're referencing now um, the New Testament, Jesus himself speaking, and we said, uh, and if you were willing to accept it, Jesus says, John himself is Elijah who was to come. That's from Matthew eleven fourteen. We know that Christ doesn't mean that John the Baptist was Elijah or that Elijah was John the Baptist. They were two separate uh, individuals, but they represented much the same uh, spirit, if you will, in terms of being desert dwellers hermits, uh, living very sort of um, austere and and um, uh, simple lives. And being uh, zealous for being the love of God. Being zealous for the Lord. These are uh, issues. Actually, I noted in, in some of the research that you did, uh, Francis, these key elements um, from Sirach, which are representative of Elijah and the spirit of Elijah, his presence to God, practicing the presence of God, which we know we hear about from Brother Lawrence, ardent love for the for the Lord, zeal, not only for the Lord, but zeal for souls, a contemplative spirit, and prophetic, or a truth bearer, right? Yes. And we're going to talk about another truth bearer in a moment, but um, this is all consistent with the Carmelite a charism. We are truth bearers. Uh, Elijah certainly didn't uh, waffle on the truth, right? He, he represented it in a very deliberate way. And I want to go back then to the final references from Scripture, because uh, what I believe Scripture is leading us to here is an understanding that the spirit of Elijah, represented by this desert-dwelling, uh, uh, um, similar to John the Baptist, was sent to us again just before the arrival of Christ to help us understand the need for this deep interior prayer which Elijah represented. And the significance of that is, and I'll just let uh, Matthew 17.3 speak to this, it is important to point out, the scripture points this, uh, uh, puts this matter to rest at the transfiguration. Matthew 17.3 reads, And behold, 
Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Talking with him, of course, is Jesus. What is that saying? If we tie these verses together, and I appreciate for our audience that they don't have the graphics that we have in front of us, Francis, but uh, let's put the pieces together. Elijah, zealous for the Lord, he represents uh, the challenge to the people of Israel by saying, decide now who you will serve. That same zealous spirit is manifested in Christ in driving out uh, the money changers in the temple. The temple, of course, representative of our own soul uh, and our need to drive out anything that is an impediment to our relationship with God. And now Elijah, along with Moses, Elijah appears with Christ on Mount Tabor just prior to Christ's final um, act, if you will, his mission, the fulfillment of his mission on earth. What's the significance of that? Well, let's let the Lord tell us. Uh, I'm reading now from Matthew 17, continuing 9 through 13. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? You can understand this dialogue, this confusion, this back and forth. And they knew their scripture. And Christ answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Well, again, we know that these two figures are not the same person. So what is Christ saying? The spirit of Elijah represented in that laundry list that we just went through, the presence of God, zeal for souls, contemplative spirit, was represented in John the Baptist and was necessary to be represented just before Christ fulfilled his mission. Now we know that for ourselves, as Carmelites, and I might argue, Francis, for any Christian pursuing um, this intimacy with the Lord, which involves both uh, the sacrificing of our sinful nature and the driving out of all those impediments to our relationship with God requires that same spirit of Elijah, that same spirit of prayer, of sacrifice, of desert dwelling, of cave dwelling. What do we mean by that? We talked a moment ago about what do we mean by the cave or the, or the, um, the cell. Um, and there's this great uh, story uh, about Elijah after he's gone uh, to do battle with the um, uh, prophets of Baal, and he's had this experience under the broom tree where the Lord asks him what's wrong, and he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, and he goes on, of course, but this is the important verse. And then he's driven um, uh, further away to where he has this experience of the Lord in um, the as he's dwelling just outside the cave, and the Lord comes to him through what means? A whole series of um, physical manifestations, right? Yeah, it wasn't the wind, it wasn't the earthquake. Right, the, right. It wasn't the, the strong winds and the earthquake and the fire and all the rest of it, which represents so much of what we experience in our prayer life, right? All those trials and the tribulations and the difficulties. and But where are we trying to go? Elijah shows us that where we're trying to go is back inside the cave. Remember, if you remember, and I don't have the reference in front of me, but when um, this still small voice, this silent voice comes, um, 
Elijah is driven back to the entry of the cave, it says. Stand before the face of the Lord. Stand before the face of the Lord. And we do that in our interior, in our soul. That's where we stand. And so I challenge our listeners right now to, when you go to prayer tonight, just really, you know, think about God's presence within you, in your soul, and stand before him and listen. Be quiet in, in your uh, hiddenness, hide with the Lord, wait upon him, wait for him to speak to you. And in exactly the same way that Christ was not referring to Elijah being John the Baptist, he was referring to the spirit of Elijah. He is calling on us to understand the spirit of Elijah who will come in the last days. And that spirit is one of interior prayer. We must seek the Lord through interior prayer. We must dwell within the cells, as the Carmelite order challenges us, the order of St. Albert, the rule of St. Albert. And we must dwell within the caves, another analogy for the cell. What is that? That's our heart. That's our soul. That's our interior. And how will we hear the Lord? Not in thrashing, not in violence, not in storm, not in wind. We will only hear him in the silence. And if we don't adopt that spirit of silence, we will not be able to hear the Lord. Okay. Now, I think we've got to back up in this story of Elijah because there's a a significant part here where we have a link to the Blessed Mother Mary. And so um, you remember uh, they just had this Holocaust that was consumed by this fire, and then Elijah uh, goes off to pray, and he tells his servant um, uh, to climb up and look out to the sea. And so he does, and he doesn't see anything. But seven times he goes up and he looks. And then finally on that seventh time, he says, the servant tells Elijah, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising from the sea. Now, I challenge you before we tell you, how do we get from that cloud to the Blessed Mother, to the image of of Our Lady. Well, we know as Carmelites that that's um, our understanding, our interpretation of that is that that is representative and prefigures the Blessed Mother. But you're right. How, how do we get, how do we make that trans, uh, transition uh, to that? Well, there's several things. Uh, of course, as we think about this cloud, we can also see that it is signaling this coming of rain, uh, an ending of this long drought. And of course, as we experience that drought materially today, we can be thinking of how our prayer, uh, asking for, for rain, uh, and, and more importantly, for God's divine grace to come and help us to so be we, truth bearers and, and to know that God lives. So we have to see the drought then, going back to your idea of, of sort of unraveling scripture, we have to see the drought as that long period of waiting before the arrival of the Lord, right? Right. And Mary, as the means of, of the incarnation, uh, prefigured in that uh, cloud in so many other ways that I know you're going to walk us through. But if we see Scripture in that context, the long period of waiting before the arrival of the Lord um, is also representative of the drought that Elijah uh, brought to an end with um, his prayer. And we should point out the significance of his prayer. You were mentioning that before. Well, before I do that, this drought may also be significant of our uh, dark night of the soul mm-hmm. or, or aridity for us in individually. prayer. Yeah. Right. Now, for us individually, you're right. Yes. That's a different experience. And again, this is why we have to go uh, to the Lord individually in, in, in uh, the, the, that quiet uh, state within our soul and seek out the meaning of these scripture verses for our 
ourselves. Scripture is also uh, for us individually, and we have to understand what the Lord is trying to reveal to us through it. So this cloud, it, it signifies the streams of this divine mercy. Um, from Isaiah, you, you get this passage, Enjoy, you draw water from the wells of the Savior. And both the fountain and the cloud uh, signify this fountain of divine grace foretold by Joel. He says in John, John 7, 37, a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and be given to all who thirst. So you you already have this significance. But uh, I, I want to go to this book of the 10 books on the way of the life and great deeds of the Carmelites. In the sixth book, um, it it talks about how God reveals to Elijah through this vision of this cloud that comes up over the sea there at the foot of Mount Carmel. In fact, at, at this place on Mount Carmel is a monastery, the first Carmelite monastery, um, and the name of it is uh, the Carmelite uh, Monastery of Stella Maris. Mm-hmm. Stella Maris, um, still there today, um, which is uh, star, which means star of the sea, mm-hmm. and so. Um, what the author Ribot writes in this book um, is that there are four mysteries revealed. Uh, first is the mystery that um, Mary is born free from every stain of sin. Mary is symbolized by the cloud that, like that cloud, she would be born of a human uh, from the hu- sinful human nature, which was represented by the sea, but as a cloud comes from the sea and is pure of all defilement, this would be Mary, free from all stain of sin. So she's born from the bitter sea, but without any bitterness. And so as the sea is heavy and bitter, this cloud um, coming from it now is light and sweet, and so is the Blessed Mother. And um, so like that cloud, Mary was lifted up through from her um, uh, from sinfulness. Uh, she was kept from all sinfulness, and she is abundantly giving forth gifts of, of um, like the rain of divine grace, you know, today is the feast day of Our Lady, Mother of Divine Grace, and her rain uh, that comes from the clouds is to fructify uh, on the earth and, and, and our barren souls. Yeah, that's the analogy I'm most familiar with is the idea that the cloud, of course, represented the end of the drought, right? The arrival now of the rain and Elijah having prayed. Uh, and sent his servant for uh, the seventh time. Seven has its own significance, which we don't need to go into. But um, this now is the outpouring of grace, the outpouring of, uh, as you mentioned, the rain, which brings uh, life back to the earth. The drought is over now. Um, And and that's one of the more uh, prevalent, I guess, historical references to the cloud and its association with Mary. But according to Rabot, there are others. Yes, the the other mystery that was revealed is the time of fulfillment of Mary's birth. Now, the Old Testament, there's many scripture passages for uh, shadowing the birth of this virgin, the virgin mother. And um, because uh, the servant climbs up to Mount Carmel and looks out seven times. Uh, this was interpreted as uh, seven uh, generations. Um, on the seventh return, the, the cloud appears because in the time covered by uh, the seventh decade of generations, the Blessed Mary was born and seen by Elisha's disciples as the mother of 
of Christ, the the mother of the Savior who is uh, uh, prophesied to arrive. And so they're watching for him. We know that the Blessed Mother herself was expectant of the Messiah's arrival. Uh, lo and behold, she didn't realize she was going to be the chosen one to, to bear the Lord. But So the people knew. So the, the uh, disciples of Elijah carried on this tradition of, you know, this expectant time of fulfillment. And the third mystery was that this child would dedicate herself to perpetual virginity after the example of Elijah, um, because they're going to cut themselves off from all the pleasures of the flesh, and they were voluntarily going to live this life of perpetual virginity. And and so Mary does that as well, living a life of perpetual virginity for the Lord. And then that leads us to the fourth mystery, that God, joining his nature with humankind, would be born of that virgin. So um, in the words in the scripture passage is, uh, prepare your chariot and go down, lest you be prevented. Um, um, I can't remember what the, the rest of the words is, but, but basically that is basically saying, um, you know, prepare, that's our nature, your chariot is the divine nature, and go down lest you be prevented, okay, in case, unless we delay, um, but rather you should bring down the rain. That is like uh, the Lord should come down like the rain and, and fill us with his grace and favor. And so, I mean, uh, if you want to get into the details of all those mysteries and the way those are, are revealed through Let, this. Let's just for a moment on that fourth one, because I think that's important. Uh, of course, the role of virginity in, in the history of Elijah, we could talk about that significant as well. But for ourselves personally, um, we have that responsibility to prepare as well, don't we, Francis? And in part, how do we do that preparation? How do we begin that preparation? It's this zealousness, this contemplative spirit, all those things that we talked about. And it's the cleansing of the temple to make ourselves ready to receive the Lord. So again, we see this sort of... Uh, uh, Delayering, if you will, of scripture and an on uh, an in, an very individual basis, uh, we have to understand exactly what the Lord may be revealing to us. We are not all called to virginity. We're not all called to celibacy, uh, but we are called to a certain station in life, and we are to fulfill that station, that vocation, in a perfect way that allows us to respond to the gift that the Lord wants to give us. And so we all have the same call. In in fairness, the Blessed Mother had uh, a much greater call than we do and and, and achieved a level of holiness, uh, was raised to a level of holiness more accurately, um, that very few would ever experience. Of course, none would experience to the degree that she did. Uh, But each of us is called to this cleansing to this purification to this preparation and i want to just pick up on one other theme uh, from the book that i mentioned earlier by jane ackerman legends of our order the carmelite order have repeated over the centuries and encouraged the imitation of this spirit of elijah his zeal his spirit of poverty his abandonment to the will of god all these spiritual qualities manifested in the model that jesus also represents for us lead to purity of heart and who do we know is our greatest model for purity of heart? The Blessed Mother. It's the Blessed Mother. Luke tells us that, right? Right. And she kept all these things in her heart, and she she um, uh, manifested this purity of heart. What is the purity of heart? It is nothing more than dispensing with anything in our lives that serves as, as an impediment 
uh, to our union with God. And, and of course, we struggle, each of us individually, with what that might be. We needn't struggle. The Lord will reveal it to us if we just seek him, if we seek him in poverty, if we seek him in his presence, if we seek his face, if we dwell in the interior of our souls in silent and contemplative prayer, God will give us everything we need for him to be able to make us holy. He does the work, but we have to dispose ourselves through interior prayer. Elijah is a model for that. He's a model not just for the Carmelite order. He's a model not just for the Old Testament or New Testament times. He's a model for today. He is a model that we should follow. He is a saint that we should pray to and who we should ask assistance from to help understand and model his behavior, his prayer life, his deep interior uh, intimacy with the Lord. And you know, at the end of that that passage in the scripture of um, about this battle on Mount Carmel, it says the sky grew dark with clouds and wind, and a heavy rain fell. And basically, uh, what the book that I was reading from said is that the heavens should be understood be, to be the honor and power and dignity of the Son of God, and that the cloud, of course, stood for the Virgin Mary, and the wind meant the Holy Spirit, and this downpour, this rain, uh, this uh, heavy rain that falls is an outpouring of grace on humanity. Um, so uh, that is the the Virgin Mary uh, bearing the Christ child who is bringing the fullness of grace to uh, all of us. And so, you know, as we think of Mary and, and the sea, uh, we, we're thinking about uh, from Genesis, the gathering together together of the waters he calls the seas. And here we think of, of Mary as the star of the sea. Mary is the place where all the living waters of graces spring from the heart of God as from their first source. Um, in Ecclesiastes, we find all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea does not overflow, meaning that, you know, uh, all this grace comes to her, but it doesn't uh, spoil her or, or affect her because she's sharing the grace uh, there for all. And it goes on to say um, in Ecclesiasticus twenty four twenty five, in me is all grace of the way and the truth. Um, and one of the saints, I think it was St. John, um, how do you say it, Udes? E-U-D-E-S. Udes. Udes. Okay. He says, there is no overflow of grace in Mary. She's not overwhelmed, for his heart is worthy of all the gifts and all the liberalities of God's infinite goodness and is capable of receiving and using them all for the glory of his divine majesty. And, uh, you know, as we think of the Our Lady as Star of the Sea, you know, that, that Star of the Sea um, is, is that star that doesn't move. We think of the star in the night sky, the, the Polaris, the North Star. It is our guide. So we look to Mary as the guard or the guide and the protector. And this star is what the sailors would, you know, use to guide them through the night. Um, as they sailed on the sea. And, and we look to Mary as our guide to, to lead us on the stormy waters of life. It, it's a great analogy. We look to the one who is um, so serene, so simple, so pure, uh, because that's the very model of, of uh, behavior and demeanor 
and spiritual presence that we're trying to adopt ourselves, and our Blessed Mother represents that. We're going to talk about her names. We talked about the Star of the Sea. You've mentioned Our Lady of Divine Grace, which is, uh, of course, the feast day that we celebrate today. We're going to have to pick up perhaps later on the uh, the title of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, but give us a, well, a brief... Well, basically, in a nutshell, we get Our Lady of Mount Carmel from this cloud as being the image of, of Mary, our mother. And then, um, because it happened at Mount Carmel, um, and then now we, we see John of the Cross, you know, talking about climbing Mount Carmel. That's the, the spiritual... Uh, ascent to perfection and so all of this comes together uh, uh, coming from this vision to elijah and, and the monks who first settled on mount carmel and, right We've and followed done, elijah right mm-hmm. and and they followed the spirit of elijah and they dedicated their first chapel to the blessed mother right they yes. call themselves the brothers of our, uh, lady, of our lady of mount carmel right. and so they would come together um from their their solitary cells they would come together in the center where the uh the chapel was their oratory and that's where they would pray together in uh with our lady as their sister as their mother as their guide as their protectress uh as you know so many titles um, but so tonight we just touched just a tad bit on Our Lady of Mount Carmel, Star of the Sea, our Mother of Divine Grace. So the history is important. The history is interesting. <clears throat> the Old Testament stories, of course, are interesting, but we've got to peel them back. We've got to understand their significance for us today. The history of the Carmelite order and its association with Elijah is rich and long and, and varied, but the central theme of it is we must recapture the spirit of Elijah. Elijah taught us to pray, and so we're going to close now with a prayer. With by a prayer. Saying, uh, yes, this is a prayer composed by St. John of the Cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O oh Mary, most holy Mother of Carmel, Virgin of virgins, sanctuary of the Blessed Trinity, mirror of angels, assured refuge of sinners. Have compassion on us in our sufferings. Listen to our sighs with clemency and appease the anger of thy divine Son. Amen. Amen. Well, again, a reminder, you've been listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We thank you for joining us this evening. We encourage you to seek the spirit of Elijah and the Lord's coming through that interior prayer that he models for us. We'll be picking up next week with another program on a lesser known, but nonetheless very important Carmelite saint. God bless.